Hello and welcome to episode four of Otmo. That's the podcast that seeks to explore what's on the mind of some of the most respected and admired people from the world of social good. I'm Joe Jenkins, your host for this show. For this episode, I'm sharing a conversation with one of my most favourite people in the charity sector. That's the wonderful Adila Worley. We first met a decade ago when I joined Adila at Friends of the Earth, and I'm proud to count her as a great friend many years later. As you'll hear in our conversation, Adila is such a thoughtful, reflective, strategic leader who really cares deeply about the causes and the work in which she's involved. It's this heartfelt passion and commitment that really stood out for me when I first met Adila, perhaps one of the reasons why she stayed with Friends of the Earth for over 20 years. During her time with the environmental charity, during which time they successfully won campaign after campaign that moved environmentalism from the fringe to the mainstream, Adila must have led every type of communications you can imagine, including strategic planning, market research, media, PR, events, brand, publishing, and of course, digital. You name it, she's done it. Which is why it was far from surprising when she took on the role of Chief Executive of Charity Comms at the start of 2017. Charity Comms is the membership network for communications professionals working in UK charities. And over the past three and a half years, Adila has helped them grow from strength to strength. She's also a member of Akivo, the Marketing Society, and she's a fellow of the RSA. We covered a lot of ground during our conversation, reflecting on leadership at a number of levels, from leading a team and organisation, to leadership within a network, and at a sector level too. Adila shares her experience taking on her first CEO role, how she's learned the importance of both confidence and vulnerability, the rise of women leaders in the charity sector, and why great communications are at the heart of great leadership. Okay, let's get on with it. Here we go. Let's find out what's on the mind of Adila Worley. Well, Adila, I'd love to hear what's on your mind. Oh, thank you, Joe. Well, I think that's that's an interesting place to start because... Um, there's almost too much on my mind at the moment. It just feels like complete mental and emotional overload. Um, and that, I think that's one of the challenges for leaders at the moment as to how to how to manage that and how to process it and how to come out the other side feeling human. Um, for me, uh, uppermost for me, and I, I would say this because we're a membership organisation, um, is my members, the charity uh, organisations who belong to the community that is Charity Comms. And I'm so aware of the incredible response that they have made to the COVID-19 crisis and you know the unbelievable amount of energy and passion that they've thrown behind emergency response. You know, everything from accelerating the move from face-to-face to digital platforms, um, being brave, you know, just trying new stuff because, yes, of course, um, they've had to, but doing that with huge amount of enthusiasm and um, passion for their cause, I think that's amazing. And, you know, at a time when their very survival is at stake, you know, that they've lost their face-to-face interactions with all their stakeholders, um, charity shops have shut down, face-to-face fundraising has not been an option for them. And so for me, um, the last few months and continues to be top of mind is how can charity comms play a role in supporting um, charities and specifically communicators? And, you know, this is not a time for stepping back for communications teams. You know, they know that they are on the front line, whether that's the digital teams providing new services and products and um, messaging. But it's a time to be seen and heard, to be visible in what is a very crowded, busy marketplace with a limited bandwidth to get the stories out there. So what is it? So we we know that they are in the front line and we want to support them. And we've tried to create every opportunity to listen to what they need most. But in addition to that, as a CEO, uh, I have to absolutely make sure that I'm leading and supporting my own organisation to survive. Otherwise, we can't do that job. So thinking about um, the very real um, transition that my own team have had to make rapidly from working in um, a small office in Spitalfields in the heart of the City of London to being dispersed all around the country to try and um, work from home 
with all our tech, but cope with things like looking after our children, homeschooling, um, caring for family, just not having the house to yourself and you've got people walking through and pets rambling. I've got a cat that regularly um, arrives uh, to interrupt whatever I'm doing. So yeah, just this transition and making sure that they they aren't run ragged really, that, that the working day still has its parameters and that they can manage their work life and their mental well-being. And then the other thing that is also really top of mind is the bigger picture, because I've, uh, I've been really privileged and I've enjoyed, although it's, it's kind of spread me very thin, the work that I've been doing with the um, not-for-profit sector much more broadly to think about how I can work with other CEOs to make a powerful case for support for why charities matter. We're not running a campaign because we want to survive as businesses. That's not what the campaign's about. It's actually saying we need to survive because the services and the support that we provide people in there in numerous ways in their lives are at risk. And we need to be there for them now and we need to be there for them for the future. So making that case to government of a vital role that we play in society, that's the other part of my job that I've been doing since March. And it's rewarding, but challenging and urgent. Thanks, Anita. There's there's so much in what you've just shared there um, that makes it understandable why you must be feeling quite overwhelmed <laughs> because we're hearing there about the role you need to play as a leader in the sector, uh, uh, offering leadership to your membership and offering leadership to your team as well. And I'd, I'd love to unpack each of those things for you and just hear a bit more about how you're approaching them. But before we do, can we just mm. go back to where you started, which is that, that feeling of being overwhelmed, of having so much occupy in your mind. How, how do you personally process that? What kind of choices have you made or what sort of tools or techniques have you drawn on to help you navigate when your, your head is full of so much big, important, urgent stuff? So I think that's changed over the last few months. So like many people, I think I just went into overdrive when I suddenly realised that I had to get my team home safely, that the travelling to work was no longer an option. And, you know, I just, I did everything from trying to download templates about safe working at home and managing well-being and best practice remote working to, you know, even um, recording messages on our answer phone so that people knew where we'd gone. You know, all of these things, it's kind of, yeah, you just, I just kind of went, got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. And in a way, that's a very human response. And if there's a threat and an emergency, you do throw yourself into it. But that, you can't sustain that. And I found that once we were settled in, once we had a pattern, once we established new ways of working, I could start to try and structure my time and my days. So um, I'm not saying that I've actually cracked that. The days do still feel very permeable and that um, I start much earlier and try to finish to reflect that. So yeah, I think it's holding on to the discipline um, that I had in my life before um, before the COVID crisis um, and thinking about making sure that I'm available to people when they need to talk to me, um, but I've got time to think and step back when I need to. And just seeking support, actually. I think this is a theme um, for all leaders and it's a lesson that I've really had to learn is that you can't do it alone. You have to build all sorts of a kind of CEO ecosystem of support around you um, so that you can get insight and practical tools. You can develop competencies. You can reflect on your own style. You can have safe places for conversations because I think that's a a real transition for me going from being an in-house head of comms to being the CEO of a small charity. I suddenly realized that those, some of those support systems working in a, in a medium-sized organization with a team and a management team and a senior management team, they were all gone. And actually, there was just me and my team. And suddenly, it all roads seemed to lead to me. And, and I had new responsibilities that I had never... This is my, I should have said, my charity comm CEO role is my first CEO role. And so I went on a massive learning curve. 
I'd love to come back to that because I think hearing more about that transition into a, a chief exec role would be really helpful to just understand the steps you took, what you learned, what you experienced, what prepared you for it and, uh, and what you couldn't be prepared for until you were in the role. So perhaps we might come mm. back to that. Um, but I really like that phrase of uh, an ecosystem of support and uh, I'd be interested just to hear a little bit more about how you built that up yourself. Um, so what did you do pre-COVID and how has it helped to during and post-COVID? So um, one of the things that my predecessor at Charity Comms said to me was when she started in the role, she spent a lot of time invested in the team and time investing in developing relationships with her trustees. But one of the things that she neglected to do was to build her own peer network. And she said, if I can give you one piece of advice, Adela, do that. And I really have taken it to heart and I realise how enormously important it has been for me to reach out to other CEOs and to learn from them. And I've been, um, I've had two mentors who have been CEOs. Um, My first one was uh, the CEO of a arts organisation, really small one, a bit like Charity Comms and a membership organisation. And he was maybe about a year ahead of me in his CEO role. And so it was very much um, a sharing of of experience and a meeting of peers, if you like. My second mentor was a very different um, mentor because he had decades of, I I call him a a serial CEO, he had decades of experience for me to draw on. And our relationship was a bit quite different, but equally important to me because what that gave me was a huge amount of um, insight into the role of the CEO. And I'll never forget one of the early meetings that we had together. He was asking me about my past and my career and my motivation for becoming a CEO. And I think I talked passionately about charity comms and communications. And he said, it's really interesting, Adela, because you've not mentioned why you wanted to be a CEO, the actual CEO bit of your role, because you're not a head of comms anymore. You've taken on a very new set of responsibilities. And I thought that was, it sounds so obvious, but it was an absolute shocker for me. (laughs) I kind of thought, my goodness, have I made a terrible mistake? Actually, am I in the right role? But it was a a really important um, challenge. And I think, I think you can get that from really good mentoring. Such a great question. It's one of those questions that I think everyone should be asking themselves whenever they're thinking about progression. And I often uh, catch up with people who, who say, how can I become a director or how can I become a senior leader? And I think that's the, the first question to ask is, is not how, but why? Because it's the motivation yes. to be to, to progress that then frames the journey you might want to go on to, to get there. What, what, was, what was your answer? Have you, have you found the answer? Why, why do you want to be a chief exec? I, I wanted to be the chief executive of Charity Comms. And the two, I can't divide the two. I've been a head of comms for many years and I wanted to see where I could take that. And I knew that I'd had two decades, over two decades at Friends of the Earth and had, had learned so much but I felt I needed a change. I felt I needed a challenge. And being able to lead an organization that was dedicated to um, empowering communicators right across the sector from big charities to tiny charities, being able to um, play a role in skilling up that professionalism so that charities could really cut through and achieve their missions it just that to me was my my motivation for wanting to move to charity comms and I knew that I had not all the skills of the CEO but I knew that I had transferable skills I'd led departments I'd restructured teams I'd written strategies I knew how to work with senior management teams I knew how to work with trustees so I could bring all of that experience into the role of a CEO but also a CEO of a cause uh, that was so close to my heart. And I think it's a huge privilege to have been able to make that transition because I didn't want to just go to another charity and be a head of comms. I'd kind of been a head of comms. And actually, in truth, Friends of the Earth is my 
absolute most you know favorite charity of ever i i absolutely love um uh, friends of the earth and environmental issues are very close to my heart so it would have been hard to find one i could have said yeah that's my home and this job gives me a chance to work with all sorts of causes from health to education to refugees to housing all of it and i get to work with all of those people and it's really really enjoyable rewarding and important I think it's that combination for me of um do I care and can I add something and if you can answer enthusiastically yes to both then it's the right progression for you um but it's really important to find both and what do you find that in in leadership roles because you're having to advocate for your organization and your mission on a daily basis that you've got to really care deeply about what the organisation does. You can't just step into any old organisation to do it. Does that feel right to you? Very much so. You have to feel it in your blood. You have to, It has to be the thing that um, you know makes your heart race faster and that you can talk with honesty and conviction about and really believe in it. I mean, I think the, the reason I've spent my whole career in the not-for-profit sector is that it's been about causes it's and it's been about people. And it's such an incredible experience to be able to work in that environment because I suspect a lot of people don't. And yeah, if you want to be authentic, and I think leaders have to, I think people see through leaders who don't have that authenticity um, very, very quickly. And you will find that you can't influence or persuade, bring people with you if you don't have that. So let's just talk a little bit then about that transition you made from being a head of comms in uh, a national household charity to the chief exec of a small charity with a really big footprint, which I think is one of the fascinating things about organisations like charity comms, where you're a team of what, 10 people perhaps around that sort of size? 12 fantastic. (laughs) Grow it under your leadership. Um, But but 12 people, um, but you work with uh, the charity sector and communicators across hundreds and thousands of of organisations. So I'd like to come back to that in terms of what that means for leadership and a small organisation with a big footprint. But before that, just in terms of stepping into a executive role where the buck stops with you, so the trustee board looks to you to lead the whole impact of that organisation. What, what did you find in that transition? So what did you find you were equipped for and what have you had to learn? So at a governance level, this is really interesting for me because I, I had actually been a trustee of Charity Comms. So I'd sat on the other side of that table and played a governance role with my predecessor And that taught me a lot. That was my first trustee role and um, that was really important. And it meant that when I came in, when I stepped down from the board and I came into the role of CEO at Charity Comms, I knew the organisation really well, but I had to flip my mindset completely because suddenly my role, that, that relationship between me and my chair was fundamentally different. And I think what I learned, I learned an enormous amount from my chair, John Grounds, um, He's been in the sector and worked across numerous charities and he was just such a wise and supportive chair. But he allowed me to find my own voice. He he enabled me to change things. Um, I have a very different style and he gave me enormous encouragement. I did my first conference and I chaired it and, and, you know, he just... He, he was supportive of the changes. He liked my tone of voice. He gave me honest feedback of things that I could improve. So that relationship with my chair was enormously supportive and invaluable at the time. Um, I also, from an operational, at the operational level of the charity, I, I suppose that dawning that actually I was responsible for everything. So if the IT went down, I had to sort the IT getting it back up again. Uh, If we didn't have a policy on health and safety, I had to kind of write the policy. Yeah, so just as well as thinking strategically, so there's kind of like the ridiculous to the sublime, the kind of practical underpinning to the, you know, where's the vision for the organisation? Suddenly all of these things needed to be um, balanced. 
And I, the other thing I've really learned is that when you're new in a role and you read all these kind of leadership books, well, I don't know if you le- read leadership books, Joe, but I, I had a few and I, I started reading them and I was thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to do all of this? And some of them was a, um, advised me to, you know, crack on, you know, if you haven't changed everything in the six, first six months, you're a failure or, you know, that, you know, there's a moment that you can grasp and if you don't grasp it too late kind of thing. So a lot of kind of trepidation about managing expectations. But one of the things I, I learned from my mentor was that it's about phasing and pacing, you know, being able to say, these are the priorities. This is what's feasible. We're going to get there, but we'll get there in time. Let's be realistic. And I think also investing in bringing your stakeholders with you, for me, a small team, you know, really saying, there's lots of fantastic things that we do that work brilliantly. And we're not going to just leave them behind, throw the baby out with the bathwater. But there are things that we'd like to do that we've never done, and we should be doing it. So being, yeah, being able to um, create that space to operate, but bring, bring the heritage, the past with you, that, um, that balancing act and that journey is part of leadership, I think. And that, that need to be across so many different things, that kind of breadth and depth that's required for a chief exec in a small charity must require um, a certain level of self-confidence because you're going to be going into lots of areas at many different levels where you don't have immediate experience to draw on. And in a smaller charity, you don't necessarily have the experience below you either to draw on too. How, how have you handled that? building that kind of well of self-confidence to enable you to move forward while recognising that you'll be often in territory that's new to you and really important to the organisation? This is a a really, really big factor, I think, in in leadership. And um, you you might, you would probably get lots of different answers from different people who know me as to how self-confident they think I am. So I'm sure my partner will say, that I'm not a very self-confident person and that I should believe in myself a lot more. But in my public persona, I try, I tr- try really hard to at least outwardly show confidence because I think confidence breeds confidence in others. And so even when I'm inwardly absolutely quaking, I try, I try not to show it. And, you know, even now when I step out onto a stage in front of 400 people at a conference, I'm nervous. I, I, you know, my confidence is kind of like ooh, quite rocky. And I, I do ridiculous things. Like I remember watching a TED talk. I can't remember the woman who did it, but she was terrific. And she was talking about, particularly women, women in leadership and the challenges that we face. And she did an exercise, which is almost, it was about body language. It was about, it's called the power stance. And I'm sure you know about it as well. But I do literally go somewhere quiet before I go out in public and do the power stance because there's something about that physical geeing of yourself up that really helps me. And I suppose it's about finding those things, no matter how silly they might seem, and doing them that will give you confidence. And so I think confidence comes from doing it. So the first time you do it will be really hard, but the next time you'll learn what worked, what didn't work. So I think that's important. And just talking to others, you know, finding out how other people do it, uh, taking advice, um, not trying to, you know, go go alone all the time. And actually, as I've, I'm now three and a half years into my CEO role, and I'm actually more confident now about being a bit more honest about my own vulnerabilities and I think it, I think it works actually. I, I think when I started, I felt like to admit that I didn't know something or or was nervous about something was a weakness, and that that wasn't part of leadership. It wasn't being a good CEO. Whereas now I know that if I say to my team, "Do you know what I'm feeling a bit nervous about that?" or "Do you know what when somebody asked me that I didn't know the answer, but I'm going to find out." I think people respect you for that because you're not bluffing. You're not trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes or be something that you're not. I mean, obviously, you can't go out all the time saying, I don't know. But I think that that honesty about that all of us are learning, that nobody has all the answers, 
I think people respect that and find it quite refreshing. I love the um, the the video TED talk that you you mentioned. I'll I'll pop that in in the show notes. And <laughs> I've uh, I've done the same thing myself. I get really nervous before I do any presentation, and uh, and people often say, "Oh, I wish I was as as natural as you at, at presenting." And and there's nothing natural about it at all. It's just getting <laughs> in the right frame of mind. And you know, I've done that. Gone in into the toilet beforehand and stood in the mirror, put my shoulders back, and and grinned stupidly at myself in the mirror just. To <laughs> try and get to the right kind of mindset. So I'll, I'll share that for people who haven't come across it. Um, but as you were talking about that, you also mentioned being a woman leader and um, in, in a sector that still is dominated by white men in executive roles. I, I'm interested in your experience not being a white man in stepping into being a, a, a senior executive, although you've, you've been a leader for many decades. What, what's been your experience of... Um, uh, not not fitting into that dominant model and not having that white privilege that enables white men to be so prevalent in the sector. Gosh, this is a yes, a difficult one. Um, probably needs a bit of reflection. But I don't know. I've gone through my life um, feeling quite privileged. Actually, I had a great education, a state education, state grammar school. Um, and went to university and, you know, I've just, I've had lots of opportunities to learn and develop and I've had a very, very supportive parents and fellow students and the people have taught me really. And I've actually just finished a course uh, looking at race equality and leadership and it's made me step back and I've actually had a lot of time for reflection about my own power and privilege. I think partly because I'm I'm BAME uh, and uh, a woman, I've always, and I've come from a family that came from South Africa and lived under apartheid and been very politically aware of justice and rights issues and campaigning. Um, and I've always felt like, well, I must be on the side of good. I can't be, I can't have prejudice. Like, that's not me. And it's made me realise that all of us actually have power and privilege in some ways and how we use it really matters and I think as as a CEO it's even more important to examine my own behavior with people to to challenge myself to think have I created a workplace where people can speak their minds where they feel safe where they feel heard where they can influence and shape what we do or is my behavior controlling or do I um, exclude people or do I shut down opportunities because I'm so busy being a CEO and worrying about the risk to reputation or whatever it might be do I close things down so it's it's been it's been really good for me um, to to have that time to think about myself and it's again it's funny it's the way that people sometimes make comments that they probably don't realize are quite so significant but somebody said to me oh Adila, you know, it's amazing how you overcome so many things. Like you're you're a woman in leadership, you're a you're an Asian person, and you're really tiny. And it must be really difficult to be seen and heard. And I, you know, they said it to me and I didn't really think about it. And then I walked away and thought, my goodness, what a strange thing to say. But actually, is there any truth in that? Have I experienced those problems? And I don't actually realise how tiny I am until I stand next to my brother who's six foot two and he says, you shrank again, Adela. <laughs> but I just, I don't ever really think about that. But, you know, in a room full of leaders and particularly, you know, tall men, there are tall women, of course, but tall men, you know, being kind of making yourself um, visible and listened to. Yeah, sometimes it can be a challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's there's lots of thought around that. And I know I actually feel I feel quite positive about women in leadership because I see so many brilliant leaders. I see so many um, not-for-profit organizations being led by women, you know, whether it's Rita at the Small Charities Coalition or Vicky um, leading Akivo or Jane leading um, Navka. You know, there are just, there are so many really effective leaders in our sector. 
And I absolutely love working with them. Um, the, the, one of the things that COVID-19, I didn't mention Deb's a, a director of social change as well. One of the things that the, the pandemic has brought us is a unique, I think, opportunity to work collaboratively. And I've spent more time with my women leaders than ever before. And actually, I'm we're working on on emergency response and champion the sector and looking forward to the future. But we've also been really supportive of each other, you know, just saying, how are you? You know, how are you doing? Are you well? I love that dress you're wearing today, Adila. Or my God, you've been to the hairdressers. <laughs> kind of very human things that you would do if you were meeting people face to face. It's it's just so important. So I think there are brilliant women leaders. I, I think we're we're forging ahead. And that isn't to say I'm not dismissing the fact that there are still you know, inequalities and that there need to be more women um, and more opportunities for women to lead. Thanks, Adela. Some really profound reflections there. And particularly that, that sense that privilege isn't the, isn't the exclusive domain of white men, that we all have different types of privilege at different times and different types of, of power. Um, and being able to reflect on how we use the privilege that we have to make change and, uh, and open the door for others, I think, is, is really important. Um, but also just thinking about how we model that power. And one of the things that stood out for me from the Home Truths report that Kivo um, helped to um, publish was the, the phrase, we need to change not just the singer, but the song. And so they were drawing attention to representation is important because it helps us to have different conversations, but it's not enough to just have representation if it doesn't change what we do and how we do it. And I think that's some of what I was hearing in your reflection is, in a sense, it's not just about who's at the top, it's what choices and decisions they make from whatever background they may have come. And that feels like quite an important part of the debate we're having at the moment is, what are we changing in our structures, not just who sits at what table? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Joe. And I think, again, it's a deal of honesty about where we are in that work. Um, so being able to say, yep, we haven't moved as fast as we want to and should do, and we are committing to it now, but what does that look like? What does that look like as a sector, but also what does it look like for me in my sphere of influence, in my organisation, in my life, how I interact with my friends, my neighbours, my community? All of that really matters. I also took a lot from uh, your, your encouragement about the, the rise of really effective women leaders in the sector and, and how you're collaborating to strengthen and build our sector as well. And that takes us back a little to what you said at the outset around the role you play in engaging with the wider sector. I'd be interested to hear a bit more about what that's meant for your own leadership approach in being able to play a part in something much, much bigger than just the organisation that you're involved with. How, how have you approached that? And what are you learning about being a sector leader, not just a organisational leader? It's been really interesting because at one level, I'm trying to play a communications role for the sector. So I've been, um, it was quite funny, I was joining the kind of Zoom, inevitable Zoom party <laughs> meetings that we are all in now. And um, the sector had been really, I think, very successful in the first phases of, of working together around um, everyday counts. And actually, that's what secured the um, first tranche of financial support the charities. And we were entering a new phase where we'd got that money, but then how is the story going to change? How are we going to start talking about where's this money going to go? How quickly can it be distributed fairly and equitably to make the most difference? Um, And what's the next ask? And I think it was Carl Wilding who said, well, Adela's on this call. She's the comms person. We should get her to, um, to lead the comms work. And so I suddenly found myself leading a subgroup with a smaller group of CEOs on the comms work. And I I had to rapidly understand where we'd come from and where we were going. And I I took a step back and thought, okay, what's really important here? And I think the story, the story of the sector is really important. And so true to myself, I reached out to those who I knew knew better than me. And I... um, I did some work with the wonderful Nikki Hawkins at the Frameworks Institute. And working with her, we developed a narrative about the sector. 
And it was really important to use framing because I know I've said this before, but I think the sector went into the crisis not in the strongest position, not just not with a strong story to tell, um, a lack of public understanding and media understanding and certainly government understanding of what we do. And so we were on the back foot from the beginning. And so framing, what framing did was it helped to step away from the language that triggers all the negativity around the sector, you know, that we're only in it for our own jobs. We're saying, you know, um, that we're all fat cats, CEOs, and we shouldn't be paid, we should all be voluntary. And, you know, all those tropes that come out around the sector, I felt it was really important when we were trying to champion the case for support, that frame, framing methodology was, was used. And I was really, really happy to work with Nikki on that. And, and then I had a, um, a bunch of really wonderful volunteers who helped create a new website hub where we could save all the campaign information and keep people updated and engaged. So that, that, that was the kind of comms job that I was given. But at the same time, I've been learning a lot more from my colleagues and having a voice in the strategy, in the public affairs strategy about how do you engage with government? How do you talk with DCMS? How do you engage the Treasury or can you? And what, what strategies could we use to um, convince and persuade uh, the case for the charity sector? And I've, I've learned so much from you know, the Institute of Fundraising and the Charity Finance Group and, you know, just about how, how change happens, both within the corridors of power, um, because I guess being with Friends of the Earth, although they were brilliant at um, influencing government and working within Westminster, they were, we were a campaigning organisation. So I felt I knew quite a lot about how you create social movements and you campaign. But seeing that insider part of the sector, how it works, has been an education, but also a frustration because you realise just how many barriers are in the way and how patient um, but insistent you need to be and the partnerships and um, collaborations that you need to forge to really make a difference. You know, and also being able to comment, you know, to be in in the third sector press, to actually give a view, express a view. and to galvanise around, uh, you will know this, uh, working in coalitions is always a really challenging thing. And you, what you don't want to end up with is the, the lowest common denominator of a statement of, of um, shared endeavour. You, know, you want something to come out that is going to cut, you know, really cut through and be meaningful and genuine. And it's quite hard sometimes. You have to work around the houses to, to get that. But if you can do it, it's really important. And one of the most exciting things, I think, to come out of this is um, from the CEO coalition is wanting to sustain that collaboration going forward into the future and convening around some things that really seem to be urgent for the sector. So race equality, inclusion and diversity being one of those things. And so we're we are actually going to do some work with a um, a facilitator to review how we work together, where it was really good, where it was really not very good, and how we could improve. And if we talk about coalition, is it really a coalition? What, what, What is the nature of this beast? Can we make it something genuinely useful? And if we can't, then let's not do it, because goodness knows we're all really busy. We've got day jobs, we've got organisations to lead, but is there a collective leadership role that can be usefully done and how can we do it best? And that really excites me because that that means that we are learning and and we could do something very exciting that the, the sum is greater than the parts. Absolutely. And for as long as I've been in the sector, there's been this sense of uh, challenge around how to find a collective voice that that does that job of being more than the sum of its parts. And I think one of the challenges for that has always been that we're not uh, a homogenous sector. And um, quite often we can be lumped together as as charities, but we know that in the hundreds of thousands of different types of organisations that make up the charity sector, there is far more that is different than there is in common in some senses in that you've got everything, you've got 
hundreds of thousands of charities who are absolutely tiny and the majority of charities don't have paid staff and comparing a organization like Cancer Research, which is a half billion pound organization with thousands of paid professionals to the majority of smaller organizations, which are all volunteer led and community based, um, they're, they're very, very distinctive. And at the same time, there is a shared purpose. There are shared values that do unify us when we can find a way of bringing that together. And I'm, I'm fascinated about the experiences that you're having. And I guess I ask that both in what you were just describing and how you've been a leader in the wider sector as we've been responding to COVID, but also in a membership network that is also trying to represent a sector of so many different types of cause and brand and size of organization and mission. How, how do you find that you have, how do you navigate that? By being really savvy about where the commonalities are and, and working together on those but also recognising that diversity is strength too and that there are times where you have to row your own boat and be the leaders or the experts in that one thing. And it's been really interesting to see how um, that's worked. So I, I've seen individual charities. So I, I'm, I'm hesitating here because Blood Cancer UK have just announced that they're looking to shrink. And they've been my one of my absolute guiding lights and inspiration because you know, they've launched uh, their brand in the middle of March uh, and they could have shied away from doing that, but they didn't. They realised that actually their name and their brand was very confusing and it needed to be clear, sharp and compelling. And that actually their their stakeholders were in an at-risk group. And so it meant that what they did was even more important than ever before. And so they united as an organisation around a shared ambition to serve their beneficiaries in time of need. And I've really, really admired that. So you've got individual organisations playing to their absolute specialisms and strengths. But then you've seen lots of organisations collaborating where they've said, actually, so health charities in particular, there's a, 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 at least five health charities came together to create, I think it's called Frontline which was um, uh, a hub for providing mental health and well-being support um, and mentoring to frontline health staff. And they came together to do that because they realised that it would have been very difficult for them to do on their own, that doing it together meant that they could pool resources, that it was just much more efficient um, and that they could all learn together and they would all benefit from that and they could deliver that service more quickly and they could bring partners on board to help them develop those tools really quickly. And so I think that's a really good example of where you can be diverse and different, but there are things that drive partnership that can, can deliver social change and social good more quickly, more eff efficiently. And ultimately, that's, that's what we're all here to do. We should all be, I think, asking ourselves, what are we here to do? Who are we here for? And is what we're doing getting us there as quickly as we can get there? And if partnership and collaboration is the best way to do that, then do it. If actually having a niche and a specialist contribution to make is as important, then really do that well. And I think it's when we, when we confuse or don't have clarity around the purpose of those diff very different approaches that it can become um, counterproductive and, and tiring as well. It can you know, drag you down and demotivate you. What strikes me as you've been talking to Dealer is also the the way in which you take your background in communications and apply it to um, strategy and collaboration and sector engagement. Is, is is that true? Is that something that you you draw through in terms of how you approach what it is that you can add most to those bigger conversations? I think so. Um, I, I think it's innate now. <laughs> I don't think I can get out of that mindset at all. But I, because I, for me, communication is not. It's not the window dressing. It's not the you know how to how to make something look and sound nice. I think it's really profound. I think it's the way that we interpret the world. Uh, I think it's the way that we communicate as human beings with each other. And I think communications, it is the change. And I think if we do it really well then we 
we can make a difference. And that's that's what really drives me. That's my my vision of how change happens in the world. And, you know, when I look at, when I think about Friends of the Earth campaigns, I look back on them. Of course, it's made up, they're made up of huge amount of specialisms, you know, the legal expertise to drive judicial reviews or, you know, take the government to court, or it's made up of um, local uh, community action on the ground. It's made up of brilliant marketeers and inspiring campaigners, all of those. But what have they all got in common? Communication, you know, knowing what you want to say, how you want to say, thinking about how you deliver it. This is, this is, this is the, the lifeblood and the modus operandi, I think, for charities who are there to change the world. And you describe uh, thinking in that way as uh, as innate, something that you you almost can't help but bring to how you lead. How how much of your leadership do you think is uh, innate abilities that you've learned to play to, and how much is a set of skills or tools that you've had to build up over time? Oh, it's really hard. I mean, if you gave me a cake and I had to divide it into into slices, I I really don't know, and I suspect that it changes and fluctuates depending on when you ask me that question or, you know, I just don't know. I think, I think, can, can leadership be learned? Yes, I, I think it can. Um, but the learning is only, you only learn if you passionately want to learn. So, you know, if you've got, if you've got the motivation to do those things, I also think it's about opportunity. I think I, I talked about privilege and I think I've, you know, I've been able to, do different things in my life. And I think a lot of people don't ever get that opportunity and yet they would make brilliant leaders. And I, I always go around trying to tell people that they would make good leaders because, you know, I see qualities in my team when they are hugely creative, um, massively ambitious, um, brilliant collaborators, um, risk takers, and but data-driven. You know, all of those skills are part of leadership. And sometimes someone may have never thought about being a leader, but actually they'd make a really, really good one. So I'm, I'm always kind of looking around and going, you'd be brilliant. You should do that. Because I think, well, I just remember the people in my life who've said, you could do that, Adela. You were one of them, Joe. You, you, <laughs> opportunities for me and pushed me and I don't, I don't I haven't forgotten that and I think it's important to do the same I think it's important to think about who's coming next who will do an even better job than you and um and I love to see it I think that's one of the huge kicks you get I get in my career is seeing people do brilliant stuff because you've and you've been part of that somehow yeah, absolutely. I, I love the phrase, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I think that's always been a guided light for me is, you know, so find, yeah. find the people that are smarter than you because you're going to learn more from them than, uh, than, uh, and, and give them the platform to, to, to be successful and, uh, and you grow from their success as much as from your own. Yeah, I, I think you're only as good as the people you've got around you. And I certainly, you know, I inherited a fantastic team at Charity Comms and, you know, people have gone on to do different things and new things and I think when you're a small charity I've had to accept that people won't won't be there forever they won't be like me doing decades of service at Friends of the Earth but um, while they're there I want to make sure they they love it as much as I love it and that they grow as much as they can grow. Thinking back across all, all you've been sharing in this conversation about how you've grown into leadership and how you've learned about leadership in different settings, organisationally, in a membership sense, in a sector sense, what, what have you been finding about yourself as a leader? What, 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 are, what are those strengths that you've really learned to trust and play to to be as effective as you are? I think I've learned... I think I said one of them earlier, which is I think I've learned to be more honest about my own abilities um, and to seek help. I, I just I, when when I need it, and um, that's made me more confident about stepping out of my comfort zone. Um, I think I am quite risk averse, uh, uh, and which may be a strange thing for a leader to be, but I I, I am quite cautious. I like to take soundings from other people before I kind of leap forward and say, that's my decision. I know when something's right or wrong. I know in my, 
you know, from experience and in my gut, whether things are right or wrong. But I, I am quite collaborative and like to hear what others think. And I don't think that's a bad thing or a weakness. I've learned that I can do change, so <laughs> which I didn't really know. I hadn't because I'd been in one organisation for such a long time. And although I'd done lots of different things there, it was still that organisation and I felt comfortable and I felt like I knew the ropes and... Whereas when I, when I moved, everything was new and I was like learning. It's like that when you first learn to drive a car and everything is has to be very conscious. Uh, so, you know, mirror, well, I can't remember what it is now, but mirror, whatever it is, I'm terrible. I haven't driven a car in decades now, but I did, used to. But the, the things that are, are very deliberate then become natural. They come, you know, you start to they just become part of your reflexes and it's quite nice to have a level of competency that is reflex. But I recognise that you never know what's around the next corner and there will bound to be something that comes at me that I've never done before and I will have to um, face face up and, um, you know, take the rap for it. So I, I know that comes with leadership too. It keeps you alert. <laughs> there was something uh, I loved at the start of our conversation when you talked about how you're trying to get through the crisis by hanging on to being a human. And uh, I'd, I'd love to just return to that and hear how, how are you doing that and, and how's it going? Well, one of the really nice things about working remotely with my team is that we, you know, we're a hugely friendly, warm, welcoming uh, team. And so trying to make that happen um, across the internet <laughs> was how we're going to do that. And one of the teams said, let's do a weekly team challenge. And so every week we do a creative challenge and it's been everything from baking. Um, we were sharing our childhood photos this week. Sometimes we do a little campaign solidarity action for one of our members. Um, I'm trying to remember, but they've just been hugely varied and fun and we've learned so much about each other as people. And actually, that's brought us even closer together. And ironically, the fact that we're not in an office together has forced us to get to know each other even better. And I've absolutely loved it. And like everyone's saying, because I mean, you, we're doing a, a call now and you can see into my lounge and I can see your office. And it tells you something about a person when you see their home environment. And then, you know, I'm surprised my cat hasn't wandered through here uh, yowling loudly. But yes, yeah, so you, you get to know people in a way that perhaps we didn't. And that, that brings a humanity to, to work as well. And it's, it's been one of the curious things, I think, during the lockdown, whilst we've, we've definitely recognised and valued how important those, those connections are, we've also in some ways been able to build stronger connections with people by having to be more deliberate than we usually are. And I've certainly found that at the Children's Society, I've been able to connect with people that probably in a normal day I'd never have seen. But because I'm being deliberate about who I speak to, I'm actually speaking to more people and having more casual conversations. And it feels like something important to take forward with us on the other side of this. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that's a contradiction for me, but one of the things I've noticed is because I'm not sitting with my team, if, if you like, maybe they feel I'm hovering over them and listening on their calls. I actually think that they have felt a, a degree of liberation and there's there's been an ability to operate in their own space. And what's been really nice is, and even, even the kind of regular one-to-ones, we still catch up, but they're shorter and they're more flexible uh, and I think, you know, my team are coming to me and saying, I've done this, I've tried this, what do you think? Or should, you know, it's just, I found it incredibly, I hope they found it um, a positive thing as well. And it's um, something that I, I hope that whether we ever return to where we were before, I hope that some of those changes, uh, we can build on them and sustain them, because I think that they've been really positive, um, positive changes. And I, we have to see the silver cloud in all of this. And so as you think about the, the, the future, three and a half years into Charity Comms and you've described some pretty big initiatives that lie ahead of you, what, what are your own personal goals uh, in the year ahead? My personal goals are definitely to look at the, the sustainability of Charity Comms to make sure that our fight, particularly our financial model, is sustainable um, and to do that in a way that absolutely delivers what our members most need. 
in the way that they need it. And what we've learned is that actually that transition to digital events has been brilliant. You know, it's connected us with more people who would never have travelled to a conference in London. We've had people not just right across the UK, but we've had people internationally. And, you know, we've got international charity members who suddenly their teams based wherever they might be in Nairobi, they can suddenly take part and be part of the community. So that's been absolutely fantastic. So really, I mean, it's been challenging. A lot of what we do in terms of income generation has been hit like a lot of charities. Um, in the online space, certainly in the first few months, everything was free. So we, we couldn't monetize any, any of that. What, what takes us a lot of effort and work to generate that content, we couldn't put a monetary value on it. But going forward, we will have to look at those sorts of things. And we have to really find ways to um, show our members, whether they're organizational members or individual members, freelancers, or our corporate partners, our agency partners, that working with charity comms is of value to them. And I, I also am really mindful, as we all are, almost every day we see news coming about the financial impact on charities themselves and how you know the sector is definitely going to change. It probably will shrink. People have to really make huge adaptions to the future. And so thinking about what does that mean for charity comms? What role can we play? How can we enable, support, empower? Um, because I, you, you won't be surprised to hear that I know that what we do is going to be more relevant than ever. But the way that we deliver that is going to matter. Absolutely. And, and what do you think that means for you in your own leadership development? How, how would you like to grow as a leader, do you think, in the years ahead? I think it, for me, it's about keeping my eye on the prize. What are we actually here for? And can we deliver it? For me, I'm like many organizations, I'm thinking about collaboration on the whole spectrum of, you know, cross promotion to partnership to, you know, even merger, you know, all of those things as a leader, you have to look at, because if you didn't, then you'd really be in dereliction of duty. So I think being able to lead that thinking with my trustees and my team so that we can confidently say that we've looked at all the options and we know that where we're putting our time, our energy, our passion and our resources is really going to make a difference. And I, I want to, you know, I want to be able to look back and say, I helped Charity Comms do that. Here's the difference that it made. I'm sure every leader says that, but it's what it's why we're here as leaders, I think, to um, point direction and make decisions and be accountable um, but most importantly, inspire, inspire other people to come with you and to join with you and to make, make a difference. And I know that charities are going to need their communication staff to be doing an absolutely brilliant job, you know, into the future. They're going to need to be reinforcing why they exist, the difference they make and helping to, you know, fundraise and campaign and do all those things that make make society a positive, inclusive, welcoming place to live your life, really. And I, but, you know, we want, yeah, we want something better. And with all that in mind, Adila, what gives you the most hope for our future? Human resilience. I mean, we just, we've just seen people, I mean, it, what we've been through in the last few months, and, you know, other than a war, the, the, the huge, profound change that everybody has had to make. And yet people have come, are coming through it. They've had to deal with horrific bereavements and just all sorts of really difficult things. And yet you've seen people supporting people. I think you have to believe that human beings have resilience and that, that we will come through this. And I think that collaboration, whether it was communities looking out for neighbours and delivering food or you know, doing odd jobs or just, just talking so that people did, weren't lonely, these things must continue. That, that glue of society must continue. Um, and the collaboration that I've talked about, both at the individual charity level or the sector level, that's got to continue because it, it's a positive thing. And that gives me hope. There we go. That was episode four of Otmo. I hope you got a good sense of why I described Adila as one of my favourite people in the charity sector. Her compassion and humanity just shine through. 
And for someone who is so often calm, collected and considered, she's also one of the most people-focused people I know. You can follow Adila on the Twitter at Adila Worley, and she's also a regular contributor to Third Sector. There are loads of past articles worth returning to. I'm also happy, of course, to give a plug for CharityCom's own podcast, which you can find on their website, charitycoms.org.uk. Thanks, Adila, for sharing your experience with us today. I really appreciate you making the time. And massive thanks to the brilliant Katie Clark and Mark Hatter, who managed the podcast, editing the audio and composing all the music. I can't do it without you. And thanks to you, dear listener. If you want to keep regularly updated, you can subscribe at our website, onthemindof.com, and sign up for regular downloads through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, follow the On The Mind Of pod on Twitter, or me, at Mr. Joe Jenkins. And if you are able to share the podcast and rate it too, that will help us reach a few more people and give us encouragement to make a few more shows. Until next time, thanks for listening to Otmo, the podcast that explores what's on the mind of leaders who are seeking to change the world.